But it is, it's a really, it's a huge honor for me to be here. I look forward to it. I receive it as just a, a, an incredible privilege to get to share. I love being in Upper Room, very special place in my heart for this church. I'm going to pray for us, and uh, then I'll jump right in. So, Lord, let's pray right now that you would be speaking to our hearts, speaking to my heart. Lord, would our hearts be open and receptive? Thank you, Lord. We would please you with the posture of our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. This morning, I have a, a really simple message. I, I'm better at simple than I am at profound and complex. And it's a message that you've probably heard quite a bit, but I want to encourage you, don't let that rob you. Don't let familiarity breed contempt. Don't, don't allow familiarity with this verse or this, this theme to cause your heart to miss it. Proverbs 4, 23. Above all else, guard your heart. For it's the wellspring of life. Above all else, guard your heart. And I know that some of you are thinking, I've heard this verse, I've heard this sermon, I've heard this theme over and over again. Good. I hope you keep hearing it over and over and over again. I hope I keep hearing it over and over again. I literally had a year in my life when I would come before Lord daily, and this is what he would say to me. Adam, it was a tender, loving way. Above all else, guard your heart. Uh, Charlie, pretty little girl here in the front, is, is here with me. I was trying to trick her. We're in the car maybe two weeks ago, and I said, Charlie, what does God most want from you? I was anticipating she's going to say obedience. Well, he does want obedience, but he doesn't want that most. What do I mean? In the, I had years and years of my life where I gave him obedience, but my heart was far from him. You know what Charlie said? She, she said, he wants closeness with us, intimacy, close relationship. I was trying to trick her, but I'm like, your answer is better than what I was going to say. Exactly right. He wants our hearts, right? Intimacy. Above all else, let's guard our hearts. I, um, I've learned from my good friend Steve Bowen over the years the importance of sowing seeds of kindness, and he has these expressions that just stick in my mind because I respect them. But one time he says that the, the messenger is the message. Right, Steve? How many times have you said that? So powerful. It speaks about how our lives speak a message. Our actions speak a message. Right? More than just our words, but our lives communicate so loudly. And I say that and say it is so true and so important. But I want to make sure that I am up front and say that I haven't embodied this message yet. I I, to be honest, had a week with a lot of frustration and discouragement, and I wish I'd handled it better. Just want to say that up front. But here's two verses that should grab our attention. Proverbs 16, 5. And I just have them in my slide, in my notes here. The Lord detests all the proud of heart. Be sure of this. They will not go unpunished. Isn't that scary? The Lord detests the proud of heart. James 4, 6. The Lord opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. I mean, these verses better grab our attention. Now, when it's saying pride, it's not referring to the type of pride that sometimes we think. Why do, what do I mean by that? In that I'm proud of my daughter. I delight in her successes. I delight in her efforts. I delight in her heart, right? Paul says, 2 Corinthians 7, he is proud of these people. See, these scriptures, when it says, Lord, detest it, he's referring to a posture of heart, of arrogance, 
of thinking superiority, of thinking more highly of ourselves, thinking down of others. Do you see there's an important difference here? Above all else, let's guard our hearts. Let's keep our hearts soft, receptive, attentive to the Holy Spirit, humble. We're living in a time where, boy, a critical spirit can come out of nowhere. It can consume us. Let's guard our hearts from bitterness, from arrogance, from jadedness. And these things grow so quickly, a lot easier said than done. So the first thing we have to do is we have to learn to see. So it's powerful. This is, uh, I believe the young lady's name is Lydia. We were talking about like, to see. When to see as God sees. So we have to see God in his holiness and his goodness, his character, his nature, his person, be transformed by that. But then the second thing is, is we have to see ourselves accurately. We see our own hearts. We have to train our eyes. I was going to play a little song for you on the piano. Maybe you know it. It's the one song. It's the one you play with your knuckles like this. You just hit the black ones, and then you go back. But I decided not to. That's one step above my singing abilities. But I say that because... You know, this young guy on the keyboard, he sees, he sees chords, and he sees harmonies, and he sees flats and sharps, and, and I just see black and white keys, right? He's trained his mind and his eyes to see. When I was in college, I worked uh, kind of as the grunt laborer for a guy who was developing a neighborhood. And uh, normally I'd just get to use a shovel, a broom, Sometimes a hammer and those things. But I was cleaning things up a lot, storing things. And all the time, he'd say, Adam, I don't want you to go fix that. I'd be, yes, sir. Yes, sir, Mr. Zarb. He's like, are you going to well, What exactly are you referring to? And he could just see things with his trained eyes, like a little teeny bow in the drywall or something that was just slightly less than perfectly level. He trained his eyes. And I went to the University of Tennessee I was there the same time as Peyton Manning, I'm a Peyton Manning fan. And anyways, one time this sports journalist was interviewing Peyton Manning. Now, if you know who Peyton Manning is, he wasn't necessarily like the quickest quarterback, but he was a pretty smart guy. And so he's talking to this sports journalist. It took him 45 minutes, 45 minutes to explain what he saw on one down, just reading the defense. One time, my iPad closed. 45 minutes. He, he's reading the defense based on what he's seen them do and the runs they've made and explaining it. I didn't play football. I did, couldn't tell you anything. I've got friends who could spend a few minutes, but he had trained his eyes to see these things. Same is true as we look at a beautiful piece of artwork. We can train our eyes to see textures and depth. And I'm saying, let's train our eyes to see our hearts. Let's be experts at what's going inside of us. So we can guard our hearts. Let's be experts about seeing what's happening inside. How is that affecting me? What do I need to do about this? How is this, how is this affecting my attitude and my reactions? Why is this there? What do I need to do about it? My wife reminds me a lot. She said, let's keep the main thing the main thing. Just love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, all your strength. And to do this, we've got to guard our hearts. I'm going to read a few verses in just a second from the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews is one of those books that's a little mysterious in the New Testament and that we don't know exactly who the author is. 
We can read it to gather enough from the context to know that these people had heard the gospel. They heard it actually is after Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension. When the apostles began to spread the gospel, they heard the gospel. They had a conversion experience. They're following Jesus, but they're under great persecution because of their faith. They're probably being shamed because of professing Christ, probably kicked out of the synagogues, but they know that there's a very high probability that their lives might be taken because of their faith in Jesus. And they have, they have this temptation in front of them, and the temptation is to shrink back. So I'm going to read this verse, Hebrews 3, 8. I think I might have this one on a slide. Thank you, sir. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Now, when it says today, it's referring to today, but it's also referring to the period of time in history that began with Christ's arrival and Christ's completion of work on the cross. It's today. It's the end times, meaning that judgment is imminent. Christ's final return is imminent. We have today. So that was verse 3, 8. Hebrews verse 3, 15. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Hebrews 4, verse 7. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. It's repeating this over and over again to stress the urgency that we guard our hearts. I know it's easy for hearts to become calloused and hard. And I say that with zero judgment. I say that as someone who's familiar with hearts getting calloused. But I say that just as a brother walking with you, wanting what's best for us. So I invite you just to look at your own heart. I think, are there things in my heart that become hard, whether it's related to, oh, our political issues? Am I causing my heart to have jadedness? Are there issues related to relationships, work situations? Maybe there's prayers that feel like they're being unanswered. Is my heart becoming calloused because of these things? Is, is regret causing me to take my eyes off of Jesus and focus on what I can't control that's already happened and so that my heart's numb and I'm no longer focusing on Jesus? And I say that with no judgment. I say that under conviction from all the times that I've done that. Shame and guilt, something that the enemy is using in your life so that your heart's not focused on Jesus. Shame and guilt aren't from the Lord. Conviction is a gift from the Lord. It's the Lord who has our best interests at heart. Above all else, guard our hearts. So how do we get there? Well, I, maybe it's an oversimplification, but I think first it comes down to truth and second, discipline. First truth is that we just have to know the character and nature of who God is. We know his word. We renew our minds with it. We, we know what the scriptures say about our identity, about the depths of his love and his mercies. But we also know and take to heart what the scriptures say about the urgency of personal holiness. And so this is where the discipline comes in. Renewing our minds with these truths making countless tiny decisions to guard our thoughts, to guard our words, to steward it all well. And we have to avoid two things I call reruns and rehearsals. What do I mean by that? We avoid reruns. Reruns is playing over in your mind 
those times where someone has offended you, wronged you? You guys ever play those reruns over in your head? No more reruns. And a rehearsal is where you're, you're practicing and prepping just in case that happens again. You're going to be ready. You know exactly what you're going to say. You've got some zingers lined up. Let's just forget the rehearsals, forget the reruns. Let's have a heart that's permeable, malleable, receptive, always loving, always kind. Paul says this, Philippians 4, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is praiseworthy, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy. Sorry, I got one wrong. Pure is one. Let's focus on these things. Paul has such a deep love for the Philippians when he's writing this. He's saying, let's put our mind on these things that are true and right, noble and pure. And I appreciated Nicole's attentiveness to the Holy Spirit about the weightiness that was going on. You know, there's something in our lives that the ancients called, they called the wall of our, it's kind of like, they called it the dark night of the soul. It's those times in our, our lives where we just are in a place where we feel completely helpless, where we are often, sometimes it's deep discouragement, deep despair, sometimes it can be deep depression. And, uh, I know these seasons. We, we've passed through hard things. The Lord's always been very tender and kind. But I want to tell you that these seasons, as hard as they are, they're necessary for us to have a deep, intimate spiritual maturity. And so they're actually opportunities for transformation. My friend reminded me this week, this is, this is painful, painful for me, but spiritual transformation is more important than my comfort. Spiritual transformation is more important than my ease. My friend lovingly kind of poked me with that when I was kind of uh, wallowing in my misery and feeling sorry for myself <laughs> earlier this week. He did it in a way that was very tender and kind, but uh, I'm grateful that he, he did it. But we have to have a plan, a plan to guard our hearts and our minds. And if you know me, I love to plan. I like technology, but I, I still have a paper planner. I love to make plans, and I've got backup plans and plans for my other plans. I got back. I did a, an adventure with one of my best buddies in northern Sweden in August. We did this long backpacking north of the Arctic Circle, and we had plans and plans and plans, and there's, there's like, rumor that the uh, airline, the small airline, was going to have strikes and pilots weren't going to be working so we had backup plans for trains and backup plans for buses plans and plans right contingency plans you understand contingency plan that's where it's if this then this if if i go outside in the morning and it's cloudy and dark well i'm going to bring my umbrella or my daughter who's working at the grocery store she's like if i get paid tomorrow i'm going to wendy's you know it's if this then this but i want to say is that these conditional clauses, the if this, then this, they, they can't exist in our faith. There's no contingency. If this happens, listen, we have to guard our hearts and love the Lord with all our heart, all our mind, all our soul, all our strength. If this person's an income poop, I'm going to love the Lord and love them with all my heart, all my mind, all my strength. The Lord really convicted me this week. I just had to, 
a series of little frustrations and he lovingly reminded me that our faithfulness can't be contingent upon someone else's faithfulness. Our faithfulness can't be contingent upon someone else's attitude, but also our faithfulness can't be contingent upon someone else's competencies. I'll give you, a, I'm not giving any specifics, but I was trying to do something with my online banking this week and uh, I got kicked out of my banking. And this is probably, it used to happen when I was in Costa Rica, literally about every month or two. And so uh, I'm back in the States thinking I'm finally going to be free of this stuff. Keeps happening over and over again. I have to call them because I'm locked out. I try the app on my phone, the app on my iPad. I try different web browsers. They say, you got to try the app on your phone. Like, I did that. you got to try the app on a different device. I did that. No, no, you need to go to the website. Okay, I did that. No, 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 you need different web. I did that. And then they put you on hold, and they never come back. I can feel my grumpiness rising, right? Anybody else ever get grumpy? Um, so, anyways, the Lord's just telling me, my love and my faithfulness can't be contingent upon these things. I've got to guard my heart. We have to guard our hearts. There's so many voices fighting for our attention, and there are voices that aren't going to point us to the loving arms of Jesus to be in awe of him, but also to, to represent him to the world. So if, if I'm having emotional health problems one day, then my response is, Guard my heart, love the Lord. If I'm having great successes and victories, guard my heart, love the Lord with all that I am, all that I have. There's no mystery, right? It makes it clear. Love Him, guard our hearts. And again, this is a season where the Lord's just continued to reveal His faithfulness and kindness, but at the same time, it's been a season of uh, just hard, hard times and rejection. I've, I have applied for a lot of employment, and I told someone, even just the Lord is orchestrating my, my path. I just don't always like the Lord's timing, and I've been trying to get some side hustles, even, even trying to get, like, to do some DoorDash. I think, I'm going to do this. Kids are at school during lunch, make a little money. I got rejected by DoorDash because someone had hacked my account, my DoorDash account. I'm like, that's so weird. How do they do that? So I'm trying to log in to do it, and... They have someone else's phone number I've never seen before, and I don't know, why in the world would someone want to use my email address? So the Lord's orchestrating things, but sometimes we have a different idea of timing and plan. So I say that to say, Lord's lovingly convicting me to guard my heart. And so the first part here, I just want to be mindful of time. I just want to point our eyes to Jesus. As we catch a glimpse of his tenderness, and his compassion, boy, our hearts kind of, the posture changes to this awe, but it's also so that we can give it away. Just a few examples. Mark 7 is one of my favorite. This widow is leaving Nain. It's the name of a, a city. She has her only son who is dead, and she's bringing him to bury him. And Jesus comes into contact. They don't ask for a miracle. They don't ask for anything. Jesus just sees the grief and sadness. It says that when he saw her, his heart went out to her. What did Jesus do? He brought her son back to life. No one even knew this was an option to ask for. How beautiful. His tender, compassionate heart. But so powerful, too. Uh, Luke 13, 
We've got the story of the woman who's in the synagogue and she's been, she's been doubled over like this for 18 years. And Jesus knows he's stirring up a hornet's nest by doing this on the Sabbath, right? But his heart goes out to her. His heart's full of tenderness, compassion. When Jesus sees the lepers, it says, filled with compassion, Jesus healed them. Mark 9 also in Mark 6, Jesus says this. He says, they were like a sheep without a shepherd. And so his heart goes out to them, full of compassion, healing the blind men. It gets me is that when Jesus was on the cross, he's being beaten, he's being abused, he's being insulted. What does Jesus say? He says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Are you kidding me? Can you see the compassion and the tenderness that should just stir awe in our hearts? but also as our example, to guard our hearts, to have soft, loving, receptive, kind hearts. Same time he's on the cross, and he sees Mary, and he sees John, and he says, John, this is your mother. Mary, this is your son. He's still thinking about others. He's caring for them. He's wanting to make sure his mom is taken care of. I love the picture in Mark 10 where he takes the children in his arms. His heart is so full of love and compassion and tenderness. And Mark 5 is one of my favorite stories, and it's the one where Jairus' daughter dies. Jesus comes to her. He resurrects her. But the most literal translation is he says, little lamb, I say to you, get up. Sometimes translations say little girl. But a more literal word would be little lamb. It's a sweet, affectionate term for a little girl. Isn't that so tender? So compassionate. Now, earlier in this passage, um, the little girl is where we have the story in Mark 5 of the woman who has the issue of blood. She's been bleeding for 12 years. So extremely anemic, extremely weak. More than anything, there's a stigma and shame attached. You remember, in this culture, first century Greco-Roman culture, shame is the lowest, it's the worst possible thing you could have. Worse than physical pain, worse than poverty. Shame is what you want to avoid at all costs. And she has so much shame attached to her. She can't worship. She can't have physical contact with anyone. If she had a husband, he's long gone. And what does she do? She, she tries to get better. The doctors just spend her money. And she finally comes up with an idea. What was the idea? If I just reach in and touch the fringe of his garment, right? And we celebrate her courage and her faith because she reaches in and she touches the fringe of Jesus' garment. This power surges through her body. She knows she's completely healed. And she tries to quietly go away, not drawing attention to herself. And I love this story and I love pointing out this out, but I think we missed something here. And I'm not speaking negatively of her. I commend her. Her faith was presumptuous and superstitious. Her faith was in a magic trick based on superstitions. What I mean is that she had an uninformed theology. She didn't know the truth of the incarnation or who Jesus was. She was working off the faith system that she had. And I say that for two reasons. One, it's really important that we have biblically accurate theological understanding of the character of God, the nature of God, the heart of God. But at the same time, we have to guard our hearts. Because if you look in the New Testament, to be honest, it's the Pharisees and the demons who had some of the best orthodoxy. It's scary. 
And I'm not downplaying the importance of theology. I love theology. I studied theology. A professor, my, the guy in charge of my program, said, let your doctorate be a towel to wash someone's feet with. I felt great conviction about that ever since he said that over and over. He's, he's one of those guys you want to write down when he talks to you, like ascribe his words just so deep and powerful. But I say that, so this, this woman had uninformed faith, inaccurate, superstitious faith. Jesus, in his tenderness and compassion, just honored her and blessed her. So I say that let's guard our heart, let's make sure our faith is accurate, but let's be so mindful of our hearts. Let's model this tenderness and compassion to Jesus, especially when we think we know it right and we think, well, they have no idea what they're talking about. Let's have the same tenderness and love as Jesus. Let's have hearts that are in awe of Jesus. How much time do I have, Aaron? Okay, I just want one more story here. So last week I'm reading Mark 6, and it's the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000, which really it's just men, probably more like 8,000 or more. And I sense what I've sensed before as I come to it. Um, maybe you've sensed this. I'm like, oh, I read this one a lot. I know how this one ends. There's I've taught on this one. There's this twinge of arrogance, like, ah, I'm just going to skip over this one. Uh, and I just pause, and I just ask the Lord, Lord, forgive me for arrogance. Forgive me for foolishness. Would you just would you speak and stir in my heart as I read this? And so you might know this story. It's a beautiful story. I'm just going to read a few verses of it. It's, uh, it's a beautiful miracle, all four Gospels. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place, but many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like a sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. By this time, it was late in the day. So his disciples came to him said, This is a remote place, they said, and it's already very late. Send the people away so that they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. And I'm going to skip ahead. Jesus, um, he directs them to do this. He sat them down in groups of hundreds and fifties. He took the loaves and the bread. He gave thanks. He broke it, and he distributed it to all of them. So the first thing that struck me was this. So you've got this, this miracle that's unlike anything ever before. The feeding of 8,000, maybe 10,000 with a few loaves of bread, a few fish. When you look at the events leading up to this miracle, there's nothing unusual. There is nothing that would lead you to believe that something miraculous was about to happen. We're like, so? Well, I'm saying for me, that was a huge encouragement because I'm like, the Lord could do something incredible at any moment. It's not just when I can sense his spirit. It's not just when I can feel the power and presence of the Lord. He can just break through out of nowhere when there's no sign or reason to believe that he's going to do it because that's his character and nature. So it increased my expectation. It increased anticipation and hope. And as I continued to read, and with a heart that was more attentive than normal, I'm reading this passage, and the Lord is just showing me how Jesus is tying the New Testament with the Old Testament. He's, he's presenting himself as the second Moses. First Moses was bringing the Israelites to deliverance, and Jesus was doing the same. He's the second one. He, 
He's giving the bread just as Moses gave the bread. The bread is symbolic of God's saving grace and provision. Jesus as the bread of heaven, bread of life. Even the way he situated Jesus, the groups into 50s and 100s, that's called mosaic regimentation. It's exactly what Moses did. And so the more I dig in with a heart that's attentive and humble, the Lord is just showing me more and more the depth and the richness of this story that I'm tend prone to read over. When it says remote place, oh, wait a minute. This is also translated a desolate place. Well, that's parallel to the wilderness where Moses was. And I see that Jesus is tying things together and he's revealing his identity as the deliverer, as the savior. Just by breaking bread and distributing fish. But then what really strikes me most was the verse that I read in verse 34. So it's not just what Jesus did, but how he did it. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they're like a sheep without a shepherd. This, this word, compassion, it actually, at the root of it, it means stomach. It means he felt deep in his gut a love and a tenderness and a compassion for these people. A desire to serve, to bless, to encourage, to take care of them. And it's the same, same compassion and tenderness that should fill our hearts and minds. Because we're in awe of Jesus, but then so we can give it away, we can guard our hearts. If we want to excel at anything, let's excel at love. And so I, I, I ask you again, under the same conviction, if, if we're not growing in faith and knowledge... If we're not growing in holiness and our commitment to the Lord, we've got to stop what we're doing right now. We've got to evaluate our hearts. If, if we're losing grasps, grasp on truths that we used to cling to about Jesus, if our desire for personal holiness is less, we need to stop everything and go right back to Jesus and catch a more accurate picture of who he is. And the beauty of his kindness, but his power, but his tenderness and mercy and his goodness. We must stop everything and tend to our souls. I, um, I saw on Facebook about a week and a half ago that a friend of mine had passed away, a gentleman that I knew uh, when I was a pastor in Tennessee a long time ago. He's a young guy, only 35 years old. Tragic. Uh, three daughters, um, and I, I hadn't stayed in touch with them over the last probably 10, 12 years at least. So I was clueless. I officiated his wedding a long time ago, a huge honor for me. And I just processed, his name is Seth, just processed, would, would Seth consider his life a success? Would you consider your life a success right now? Are you successful? What? What metrics do you use? How do you decide? How would Seth decide, yes, I was a success or not? Don't get me wrong. I understand Christ's righteousness is credited to my account. I know that God delights in me. We're the objects of his affection. We're sons and daughters. You can read it over the bathrooms here, which is pretty awesome. Sons and daughters, right? We're the objects of his affection. That just shakes me every time. Zephaniah 3.17, he's speaking to the faithful remnant. He takes delight in me, rejoices over me with singing. I know this is true. At the same time, we're called to faithful stewardship. 
of what he's entrusted to us. I have to guard my heart, my mind, my thoughts, my emotions, use my gifts for his glory. But how do I decide if, if I'm a success? And it has nothing to do with the world. It has to do with that question that I asked my daughter, Charlie. What does the Lord most want from you? Intimacy. What well, has to do with guarding our hearts? Above all else, let's guard our hearts. Let's renew our minds with the truth. Let's have a plan of action. Let's make sure that we're not undervaluing the urgency of pursuing personal holiness. It's in our own best interest to prevent us having to have the regrets, the shame, so that we can better hear his voice, so that the power of our testimony grows, so that our spiritual authority can grow, so that the Lord will entrust us with more because we've proven ourselves faithful. To make sure that our metrics for success come directly from our picture of Jesus, of love, of humility, of kindness, of a heart that's receptive and attentive. I'm going to pray for us as Aaron comes up. Lord, I just pray that our hearts will be pleasing in your sight. I am grateful and blown away that you would call us the objects of your affection, that you would call us sons and daughters, that your Holy Spirit would intercede for us in moans and groans that are too deep for understanding, that you would lavish us with your love. But Lord, would we be faithful with what you've entrusted to us? Lord, would we, would we have a plan to seek personal holiness, to honor you, to praise you, to reflect you? Would our hearts be so full of tenderness and compassion and mercy? Lord, would we be the light of the world? Would we reflect you and represent you in a way that's so pleasing in your sight? Thank you that you're with us and you're for us. Thank you that you empower us. Thank you, Lord. Love you and I praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Adam.